The press conference will last about 45 minutes, which includes a short presentation from Dr. Scrace and Q&A from our media port partners. When we get to the Q&A portion, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question and keep it raised. We will lower it for you. We will go through one round of questions, and if we have time, we'll go through a second round of questions. I'll turn it over now to Dr. Scrace to go through his presentation. Uh, thank you very much, Jody. And just uh, Jody is our new communications director at HS at DOH. Sorry, we she was at HSD. Now she's at DOH. We're delighted to have her here. And uh, we're uh, thanks for all of you joining us today. Mainly good news today, uh, and looking forward to the question and answer period. So I'll move things through things quickly. And if I go too fast, it's fine to point me back to a slide I covered and. We'll do it again. So next slide, please, Brianna. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this is our sort of everything you need to know about seven and 14 day trends uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. You can see on the top, we've got number of cases. Uh, second, yellow is hospitalizations. Third is deaths. And you can see that that meteoric drop in case counts and even hospitalizations has persisted. Um, usually uh, there's a little bit of a lag on cases, not as much with hospitalizations because they are uh, real-time uh, reporting. And then finally on the bottom deaths, there is a six-week lag. If you look to the tables on the right, you can see that, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're coming in soon, probably in another couple weeks, on having a full 25%, one in four New Mexicans being infected with covid but you can see that we're a little over a quarter of the number of cases in the last seven days as we were in uh, at the end of uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the period that started on the 16th. So huge drop there. Hospitalizations were in the uh, 500s, uh, have dropped by more than 50%. Uh, and you can see improvement there. And then lastly, on deaths, still seeing a fair number of deaths, a slight drop, but uh, that's a six-week lag to get all of the death certificates in from around the state. So probably that data will continue to roll in as time goes on. Next slide, please. We continue to see improvement in our hospitals. We still have some hospitals over 100% capacity, particularly a couple in Albuquerque, but we have more ICU beds, more non-ICU beds for COVID uh, individuals than we've had uh, in quite some time. That's a very positive trend. And uh, we're, we're and most of the facilities now have room, uh, not taking care of very many patients in the hallway and are moving back out of the converted spaces to make new hospital uh, beds into a, a, a regular operating mode. Uh, workforce still an issue. New Mexico still sponsoring 500 people uh, that we're bringing in to help out our delivery system. And we are going to be able to gradually de uh, decrease those numbers. We still plan on supporting those hospitals that are actually in a position of being over capacity. We haven't decided that cutoff number yet, but that's under discussion. So positive news here. Again, a very steep drop in hospital self-assessment. They're really on the borderline now. 
back down to contingency level one, which is uh, where we actually started at the very beginning of the pandemic. This graph doesn't go all the way back there. Next slide, please. Uh, CDC has changed their guidance. If you can see this map on the right, it's the old guidance from CDC. And you can see in the old guidance, everything, uh, <clears throat> it was almost everything was red. And so very high case counts. It was mainly based on case counts. You might remember test positivity was in that mix. And I think what's happened at the CDC is what has been happening at DOH here in New Mexico for the past couple of months, we've realized that case counts aren't as relevant anymore. We were having probably, I'm going to estimate, we don't have final data, but about half the hospitalization rate for Omicron that we did for Delta, maybe even lower than that. And so we're, uh, we're really realizing that hospitals is where should we, uh, we should be placing our focus and, uh, and where we should be really watching our resources. And so this is the old way of measuring things, but because Omicron uh, doesn't have the same level of uh, um, hospitalization and death, and I think we're gonna find a much lower death rate as well, um, CDC is now moving away as we have from just strictly looking at cases. So the next slide, I'm gonna, this is available on the CDC website, we've given you the link. You're welcome to go there. But now they've gone to a, it's really a green, yellow, orange, sort of a division, low, medium, and high. Uh, low being limited impact on healthcare systems, medium being some, you know, moderate impact uh, with more people with severe illness, and high is, you know, very high potential for healthcare system strain, high level of severe illness. And what CDC is suggesting as we look at what's going on in our communities and sort of use that as our weather map to decide how to dress, if you will. So if you see a cold front coming in, uh, you might bring a heavier jacket with you to work. If you see rain coming in, which rarely happens, and if you have an umbrella, you might bring an umbrella. If you see a surge in cases and hospitalizations in your community, you might decide you're gonna wear a mask for the next uh, one to two uh, weeks until you see how things work out. And one thing I want to be sure to say, just to save a reporter from asking it um, in a few minutes, is this is not, we're not under having any discussions about using the, this new system for making statewide policy decisions. Uh, just like the weather isn't the same in every county, you know, uh, this is just a CDC tool to help individuals, like we talked about last week, with the mask mandate ending returning the tools to make these kind of decisions to individuals. And I think this is a really helpful tool from the CDC. To get even more specific without going into as much detail as I could on the next slide, Brianna, uh, please. Uh, you can see that there are three measures, the number of hospital admissions per 100,000 in the past seven days, the seven day average percent of staffed inpatient beds, they're filled by COVID patients. So what percent of people in the hospital are COVID patients? And then the total number of cases. But cases is a distant third, and now hospital admissions. I'm not going to walk through all of this, but we did do the math for you. In New Mexico, we have 2.1 million people, which is 21, 100 thousands, right? 21 times 100,000 is 2.1 million. So we worked out the math for you. So 
when they say less than 10 COVID admissions per 100,000 population over seven days, that's really less than 210 a week here in New Mexico, or less than 30, average, less than an average of 30 a day, and so on and so forth. You know, so less than 10 for uh, admissions, 10 to 20 is medium, over 20 is high. That's over 420 uh, admissions a week. And, and we've been there before, and I'm going to show you a graph that sort of basically tells the story. Well, what would this have looked like going all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic? We worked on that today. So, and then the percent of beds, that's something that we'll be uh, <clears throat> doing new calculations on and moving to reporting that. And then of course, the number of cases will continue. Uh, I think you may remember uh, that that uh, uh, 210 cases per week is actually where the CDC was before with their yellow designation. And now they're saying over 210 cases it, uh, per week is uh, the, new, the new norm. So anyway, uh, that's uh, where the new system looks like. If you go to the next slide, you can see a fairly striking change. The left is the old system. The right is the new map on the CDC website. And you can see the whole country went from red, basically, to kind of a yellowish yellow with about equal amounts of orange and green. Uh, so I would say just squinting at the map that it all averages out to about a yellow for the whole country, a medium or moderate uh, level of risk, uh, medium actually in the new jargon. Uh, let's go to the next slide. But oh, wait, go back, one, go back one time. Um, one other thing about this is, so this would say that if you live in a green county, you might, that might be like fair weather where you won't bring along a heavy jacket or an umbrella. You might start going out uh, you know, shopping, you might choose to wear a mask or not. You might go to a restaurant. If you live in a red area, <clears throat> you'd want to seriously consider all those options and whether you want to be in indoor spaces. And then the one part that's different from the weather, although it applies here too, is if you're immunocompromised or have serious risk factors, you might, <clears throat> excuse me, you might want to live um, in sort of an orange kind of level all the time to protect yourself more. Okay, uh, next slide. So this, <clears throat> this looks suspiciously like the other graph with the colors because we used it to make this one. But if you take those CDC hospitalization rates uh, that we showed you and you map them out, uh, you can see the low, medium, high, and you can see we were, very, we were definitely in high hospitalization uh, number of hospitalizations back with Delta, uh, sorry, back in November of 2020 with Delta, we we're sort of in a yellow version of this. And with Omicron, we almost touched the orange. Now, the one critique I would have of the CDC method of doing this is in order to use this as a guideline, it kind of assumes that all the states have the same number of hospital beds per 100,000 and they don't. There's more than a two to one variation. And you've heard many times here that New Mexico is near the bottom. So in some ways, I think focusing on those hospitalization metrics kind of underestimates the risk, although the percent of hospital beds occupied is the right way to do it, because then we 
look at our total number of beds. But I think this is a fairly good picture. I also want to say that I will never show this graph again because it's really not fair to look back uh, at previous times. I just wanted to show, I was curious. I thought you might be interested, but really uh, we're now we're talking about hospitalization rates with the variant we have now, which is Omicron. So uh, this is just what it would have been like if we went back in time, but the rating system I think is particularly appropriate right now. And note that we were in crisis standards of care for a really, really long time. When basically for a long time when we were about 15, 17 uh, hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Um, and that that's reflective of New Mexico's um, smaller bed capacity. Next slide. So I've already gone through this. There's New Mexico there. Uh, CDC recommends more care in high uh, <clears throat> levels of risk and uh, less taking care and caution in low levels of risk. But for everybody, um, should be vaccinated, not just if your county's orange. They still, re they, they still recommend, we still recommend everyone getting vaccinated. Wearing masks indoors, particularly if the level's high or your risk is high, I would say. Anytime you can increase ventilation in indoor, indoor space, opening a window, <clears throat> excuse me, for an indoor gathering or other things like that, that can be quite helpful. And of course, no one should go out to work or to shop or to the grocery store when you're sick. Please stay home and um, get someone else to help you with those errands. Uh, so I think the last slide in this segment is just a review of where's New Mexico today. Uh, similar to the rest of the country, seven counties in low or green, 16 counties in yellow or medium, 10 counties in orange or high. It'll take some time to move into the system. We will be reporting this at a state level and uh, probably not daily, but weekly level for counties. And, uh, and we're really in strong support of following all the CDC recommendations. And if you're if you're in an area of high community uh, level of risk, the orange counties. Okay, next slide. Uh, usually we go through a variant of concern report. I'm just gonna do a really brief look today. And Brianna, if you could just click on that link and bring up the variant of concern report. This is how we follow different variants over time. And uh, maybe I should have shared this myself, Brianna. I probably could because um, it might actually, I wanna move the pointer around it a little bit. So let me, let me just get it set up a little. And let me try sharing my screen instead so you don't have to switch out. So here we are, and here we are. And uh, this is the um, variant of concern report. And so here's the beginning of the pandemic. Hey, David? Yes. Sorry to interrupt you, but you're sharing your calendar, not the report. Oh, just a second. Well, I can fix that, I think. Just give me, I have a busy calendar as you can all see. Um, here we go. How about now, did it just pop in? Yes, it did. Perfect, thanks for interrupting me. So here is the beginning of the pandemic that what we call the legacy variants or the original ones. Here you can see alpha taking over. This green bar started small and then almost took over, you know, most 
about 80% of all infections. Then Delta, uh, one, interesting a blip here and here, but then really taking over rapidly and lasting for six months. And then Omicron taking over even more rapidly. That's the blue. This is a shaded area that says, you know, we don't have all the data in yet. Now, uh, and if you look here, you can see that uh, the blue is Omicron. Now, what Mike Edwards will do is if the B lineage, um, uh, the, B, uh, the B2 lineage starts growing in New Mexico, we'll start tracking that and we'll see it increasing. We know it's increasing in England, for example, is up to 10%. So we'll be watching that and going through the same routine about hospitalizations and other things we do. One thing that gives me a little bit of hope that I want to mention is if you look from the beginning of uh, alpha to the end of alpha, it's about six months. If you look from the beginning of delta to the end of delta, it's about six months, maybe a little longer. If you look from the beginning of Omicron, well, we're only uh, three months into it. So I'm kind of hoping that we maybe get a little bit of a respite that Omicron continues to dominate our sequencing before another variant emerges. And so there are lots of other really cool information in here, uh, proportion of various variants as they've affected different race and ethnicity groups. You can see the historical count up by, uh, by county of the different variants and how they've affected the county, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to highlight because we'll be watching that bar graph and looking for a new, probably sublineage of Omicron to be the next thing uh, to emerge. So I think with that, we only have one more slide and we can put that in slide sharing mode, but uh, you know, we're getting into a new stage of the pandemic. DOH is hard at work planning that transition to a new phase of lower level of activity with an add-on plan of what we're gonna do and jump to if we have another surge. So we're planning both of those now and we'll have more next week. The theme of the press conference will be really focused on remembering two years of COVID and also what that plan is going to be going forward. We are getting the relief we predicted in hospitals. Uh, many people thought we ended the mask mandate too soon, uh, but that's, and while I don't agree with that, I, it's fair because they didn't see the modeling data that we were looking at that was projecting this downhill, uh, very steep downhill trending cases and hospitalizations that we ended up seeing. So understand that, although that was in the modeling reports. And, and lastly, uh, let's continue these conversations about how we learn to live with COVID. There are a lot of very strongly, very, very strongly held opinions out there on either side of almost every issue around masks and vaccines. And I know, because I get these opinions in my email, let's be kind to each other. Let's be considerate. Let's be open, open to hearing other points of view. And with that, Jody, I'm finished and let's turn it over for Q&A. Okay, um, we have some hands raised. Uh, first, we're gonna go to Brianna Albuzo from KOAT and then Julia Goldberg with Santa Fe Reporter. Brianna, you should be unmuted and... Hi, can you hear me? We can hear you. I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, before um, we do that though, there's a question asking me to turn my camera on and... Uh, 
and some of folks who are in the conference room can only see the interpreter. So, and they say they can't change got the to now. video settings. Okay, so, okay, we got it, there we go. So I couldn't imagine how difficult it must be for a room full of reporters to be part of this conference and not be able to see me and my belief sign and the, the flags and all my uh, leadership paraphernalia here. So let's go ahead, sorry to interrupt. Okay, thank you again, Dr. Scrays, for having these discussions with us today. Uh, I'm just curious, how many hospitals in the state are currently in a crisis standards of care? And for those that still are, what are the deciding factors to not to get them out of it and not be declared crisis standards of care? Thank you. That's a great question. Let me start at a higher level, what you didn't ask, and that is that the state has declared, I think, three, now we're into our fourth month of crisis standards of care. Our intention and plan, and we mentioned this last week, is to let the current declaration expire. And I believe that comes due, uh, I, I keep memorizing this number. I, I wanna say March 11th, that might be as late as the 15th, but we're gonna let that expire. In talking to hospitals, I think what we're finding is the staffing situation, which has changed since the beginning of the pandemic and gotten worse, is their main uh, issue. And so they really wanna be able to stay fully open, cover as many people as they can with staffing. And so each hospital you know, made that independent determination and they're talking amongst themselves about what the wind down of that also looks like. So I can't tell you today, but I can tell you that the primary factor is going to be staffing, will be staffing, and that's why DOH will continue to provide staffing support to very, very full and over full hospitals, uh, paid for, by the way, by our federal partners. So I don't want to take too much credit for it, but we're continuing to coordinate those folks coming in until hospitals can get down uh, back to a normal level of care. But I, I think... Uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna meet with them next, uh, actually tomorrow. We just changed our schedule. So I'll have more information uh, next week on where they think they're at. But it's a great question. And I think I would be surprised if we didn't see almost every single hospital end that crisis standards of care designation. And Brianna, maybe it's not a bad idea to pull that old slide out and start filling in the end date column and sharing it maybe next week. Thank you. All right, then next we'll go to Julia Goldberg. And after Julia, we'll go to Austin Fisher. Julia, you should be allowed to unmute yourself. Thank you, Jody. Uh, thanks, Dr. Sprace. I have some confusion regarding the state's relationship to the new CDC guidelines, uh, that being as follows. Number one, you started out by saying that the state is not going to be adopting them, and you ended by saying that you will be incorporating them on a weekly basis. So I'm not actually sure what either of those things mean, but more importantly, I'm not entirely clear on, it sounds like you support the CDC guidelines, which I assume means you support the designations they've given to those 10 counties. I'm wondering if you could clarify where that data is coming from, because I have been trying to cross-reference, Santa Fe County is one of the red counties. Their hospital rate doesn't uh, correspond to our weekly uh, epidemiology report on case rate. I'm not aware of county level percentage of staff inpatient bed data that I've ever seen. And it also doesn't correspond to the case rate per 100,000. So I'm not sure where their data is coming from or if you think their data is better than the data the health department is publishing. 
Those are my 10 questions. Thank you. I'm going to boil it down to two. First, I, I probably was confusing. We are going to adopt the CDC guidance and parallel the reporting. What I was saying was we don't have any plans to use that. There's no discussions going on to have new mandates related to that on a county level. So I think it's valuable information that we all can use to make decisions. We'll start reporting that data on percent of hospital beds, you know, filled with COVID patients per week, um, number of new hospitalizations per week. So you can see that. And uh, I and I just checked um, yesterday, and I'm pretty sure we can do that at the county level. I can't commit to that today, but it sounds like the search you're doing um, would help that if we could report that as well. And then where does the data come from? It actually comes, the data gets reported to DOH every weekday by every hospital. And by every, I mean almost every hospital. So sometimes if people are busy, they forget to submit. Uh, typically when a hospital doesn't submit, it's a very, very small hospital or two very small hospitals. So it doesn't skew the data like it would if, you know, the university level as Prez, St. Vincent all didn't submit. They always submit every day. So, and then we pass that data onto the federal government. And so it's a, a very detailed data set that needs to shrink down as we get into this not peak mode and we get out of crisis standards of care, but the data comes from hospitals to us, to the CDC. So we believe they're going in and doing their own math on their beliefs about how many beds hospitals have and, their, and how many COVID patients they have, which are reported and how many new hospitalizations they have, which are reported. DOH also does an in-depth validation of new hospitalizations as well. And so that's probably a little more accurate, but close. And so I, so they have not completely uh, opened up that reporting method methodology. I would guess some of it is uh, due to um, uh, delays and lags in the data and all. And I think we're gonna be working with them to make sure what we're seeing is the same thing as what they're seeing. But basically all the data they're getting actually comes from DOH but those hospital category data comes from the hospitals to us. We submit it to the CDC for them because it's easier for them to just have one place to submit. Okay, next we're gonna go to Austin Fisher. Austin, would you remind us of your media outlet? And after Austin, we'll go to Brian Botel at the Albuquerque Journal. Yeah, thanks Jody. This is Austin Fisher with Source New Mexico. Thank you, Dr. Grace. Uh, I wanted to actually follow up on uh, Julia's question from February 9th. I, I sent this ahead of time. Uh, so she asked about whether state, she asked last month about whether state officials have thought at all about tying mask mandates to front facing metrics like test positivity and case rates. Dr. Scrace said yes and no, and said that the, the crisis standards of care evaluation by hospitals, resources, staff, et cetera, that's probably the primary one. You said, I think that it won't be cases anymore. It won't be test positivity anymore because that's become a meaningless number with people testing at home. So my question would be, why won't cases be a primary metric anymore? And do you think that cases are also meaningless? Um, I don't think cases are meaningless uh, at all. I think you saw the CDC hierarchy is basically focused on the two 
hospitalization metrics with us with a case, I'd call it a case number caveat. Um, we don't know. Somebody else asked a really good question about, well, what is the correction factor for people doing testing at home? And how many more cases are there that we don't know about? And we don't, um, we don't have an answer for that yet. That's something that we can study. We actually look for COVID antibodies and routine blood samples. Uh, you know, the people get not for COVID, but you know, you get your blood count done. You might be randomly selected to see if not you, but the person who got the blood has COVID antibodies. Then we can look at, gee, what percent of the population seems to have COVID antibodies. So for example, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks we'll be at exactly 25%. And let's say those uh, surveillance studies, and those are tr true surveillance studies, show antibodies in 37 and, and a half um, percent of the population, you know, then we could reliably conclude, and I'm making those numbers up because we don't have them yet, but uh, I could, we could reliably conclude that for every two cases of COVID that we know about, there was another case that we don't. Uh, but, and then I think the next step will be to break that down into shorter discrete uh, time periods and look at smaller samples of data to determine that. So uh, I think we're not, <clears throat> nobody's talking about um, all the conversation in the past several months is how can we put mandates behind us get New Mexicans the tools they need to manage themselves, their families, their communities during the pandemic, things like home testing, better masks, uh, access to oral treatments. So you can just simply call your doctor, be seen quickly and get treated for COVID and avoid hospitalization. And so I'm hoping that we can find a way um, to empower every New Mexican to do this so that uh, mandates uh, won't be necessary. And back before we had all the tools we have, uh, I think I can understand why that was important because uh, we didn't have those tools. But now hopefully all of us have gotten our tests from the federal government and we've gotten our tests from the state government and we've got a supply of testing at home we can do right away. And so um, we'll still watch cases. It won't be perfectly accurate. I also talked about the fact that test positivity won't be as accurate because not so much, because I think we'll probably find out about most positive cases, but most people currently who do testing at home don't report a negative test unless they report it to their employer because that's what they need to get back to work each week because they're on a testing program. So I hope I answered your question. It was a follow-up. So sounds like I didn't answer it last time, but I think we're going to continue to watch cases and report them, but we really believe, and the CDC I think is, with us on this today, that uh, with the hospitalizations since the beginning of the pandemic, the number, the percent of beds filled have been the primary resource constraint. And CDC is exactly right in our opinion to, to turn the focus to that now. All right. Next, we're gonna go to Ryan Botel at the Albuquerque Journal. After Ryan, we'll go to Chris McKee at KRQE. Ryan, you should be able to unmute yourself. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, uh, Dr. Grace, for taking our questions. Um, uh, when it comes to measuring hospital pressure, uh, how do how are health officials going to do that? And, and specifically, like there's the New Mexico Hospital about 
evaluation evaluation scoring system. It was like a zero to 40 point score. Um, if, yeah. if, if that's a key metric, can you talk to, to explain that a little bit to me? It looked like 30 to 40 was in crisis. Now we're down to 19. Some questions I have is like, what's normal? What have been some high numbers? And, and like, does each hospital have their own score? And then those are averaged together. It just it kind of, I, I don't know, just kind of want to know how you're going to measure hospital pressure going. Yeah, forward. no, that's like a really important question. And I'm really glad that you actually asked it. Let me, uh, let me go to the medical advisory team website and share my screen for a minute. Part of what we want to do is answer your questions. And, uh, and, uh, and then if I could ask my staff to limit the text messaging right now, that would be really good. Uh, so this is the Matt webpage. This is that scoring system. Basically, when things aren't going well, the hospitals sit down, they meet weekly, and as a group, de develop a collective scoring for a bunch of different items. That grading sheet, you can find by clicking here, and you can see things like clinical care, they measure, are there delays in care? And we define what it looks like in that, uh, you know, the contingency level, yellow, which is yellow. Uh, level one is yellow, level two is um, orange, level three is red. And so, uh, and you can see the scoring, of, like how many points do you need to overall be in the air, these areas? Now, one thing I will tell you is there are things on here when we put this together in, I think it was April or May of uh, 2020, the first time, and then revised it for October of 2020, there are things on here that really aren't actually relevant anymore. Of course, ICU beds, non-ICU beds, those, as CDC is saying, very relevant healthcare modeling. We won't ever drop that. That's been a mainstay of us planning at least two to four weeks ahead for what to do in the pandemic in our state, unlike many other states, workforce is not gonna go away. But then there are things like PPE and equipment that really aren't any, um, aren't factors anymore. And so what the MAT operations team hospitals are doing now, now that we're in a lull again, uh, they're gonna measure next week and then we'll prop, probably stop, uh, probably, Measuring, I guess I have to go back here and then here. No, no, here, I have to go here. They'll probably stop measuring soon. And then they're gonna revise that scorecard to take advantage of everything we've learned in the past two years and, and only focus on the most relevant items. So that's a work in progress. And when that gets revised, we'll either let you know, I mean, we'll certainly put it right away on the web, probably a three to four week process with various reviews and approvals and, and the like. So, but that's a good question. And, and you're right that as that, I think there's the CDC takes some objective data about percent of hospital beds full and number of admissions, which will vary from state to state based on bed supply. I have relied on this graph, uh, the, the, the hospital self-assessment graph, probably more than any other data point in the whole pandemic, you know, for making decisions about crisis standards of care or, you know, other interventions, you know, high, bringing in 500 staff, et cetera, et cetera. 
So uh, work in progress, I want, would, I'd be remiss not thinking. The medical advisory team, a lot of work goes into this. Mike Ciccarelli and others on the mat lead that um, team, pull all the hospitals together, reach consensus on each of those items every week uh, when things are uh, need to be evaluated. So it's been a good effort and I appreciate the question because there's a lot of heroes there who have contributed to keeping us as one giant delivery system and keeping everyone connected through the whole pandemic. Thanks. All right, next we're gonna to go to Chris McKee from KRQE News. And after Chris, we'll go to Rick Ruggles. Chris, you should be able to unmute yourself. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate y'all's time. Um, I wanted to ask a question in relation, dovetailing out of this conversation about hospitals, about what we're obviously seeing in Albuquerque, some of the first big building cranes in a long time that have been here. Um, Presbyterian and UNMH are both in the midst of construction and expansion. Um, but of course, one thing we've even talked about in this news conference is the lack of staff that is here to uh, fill all of the jobs necessary. There was been a lot of reliance on traveling nurses and healthcare um, workers over the last several months. With that in mind, um, this is maybe just a forecast question. Um, obviously, hospital capacity, more hospital capacity could have been used over the pandemic, but there is that critical stopgap there of staff. When these future hospital wings come online, how much of a use do you see them being for sort of preparing for the next phases of maybe COVID or another pandemic? And what kind of challenge do you think it's going to be to actually staff them? So that's a really great question and one I haven't thought about. So uh, one of my, uh, my favorite questions are always the ones I haven't thought about because it affords me the opportunity to think about it. So I'll think about it out loud a little bit. Uh, maybe ask the Matt what they think about that as well. But obviously, the step one is building the space. I think one of the things we've learned is that New Mexico clearly does not have enough nursing staff in our state. And I think that that problem is likely to get worse before it gets better. I think some of our hospital and nursing leaders in our hospitals are seeing a shift in nursing where a lot of younger nurses without a lot of um, extensive experience are now actually um, you know, deciding just to be traveling nurses. And hey, I can be mobile and do five, 10, 15 years of my career just moving around. Well, that makes it hard to get steady, predictable staffing for existing and new facilities. So uh, the kinds of things I've been thinking about and we've been talking about a little bit, uh, I hadn't put, we've been talking about nurse staffing a fair amount, hadn't put it together with the new, uh, the cranes up. And I and I, um, I should just sidetrack myself for a minute to say, seeing those cranes up is a really, really good news. Uh, we don't have enough beds in New Mexico. We're going to need more beds. I'd rather have them expand uh, into those beds than closing down operating rooms and stopping all the other healthcare we had to stop in 2020. But I think we need to rethink incentives for nurses, salaries for nurses. I know Medicaid is uh, working on some provider rate increases to focus on frontline staff and employees. And those are in the works and now uh, uh, the first phase approved by CMS. So you'll be hearing more about that fairly soon, I believe. 
but we're, um, you know, we need to have things like paying off nursing school loans for nurses to come to work either in New Mexico or in shortage areas, which right now is all of New Mexico, but, you know, for doctors who work in rural areas, we have programs that forgive some of their medical loans and, you know, provide incentives. And so I think we're going to need to send that up, extend that more broadly. Um, it's one thing to compete with Texas or Colorado or Arizona for nurses. It's another to compete with a traveling nurse market that right now is uh, the wages are rather inflated and make it hard for frontline folks who've been in New Mexico forever to work right next to somebody who might be getting paid as twice, twice as much as they are. But yet our New Mexico nurse has to tell them everything to do for weeks or, you know, constantly diverting resources to help, which isn't a bad thing. It's still better than not having that traveling nurse. But um, I think a public policy strategy regarding healthcare workforce is something we need to do. That is going on in the human services department uh, with respect to primary care. A huge effort is actually underway to expand primary care resources. And, and by my way of thinking, it's just my way of thinking, I'm not speaking for the governor or anyone else, but I think the next step is to set up a similar uh, broad sweeping effort to enhance nursing staff. And then frankly, other healthcare specialties too, pharmacists, hospital pharmacists, um, respiratory therapists, all there are lots of, of uh, healthcare professional groups that have been in short supply during the pandemic. But I think that kind of, you know, I'm always talking about what isn't the role of government, but I, I do think this one in particular really could be the role of government to organize, convene uh, key parties in the state. You know, what if we challenged, you know, our nursing schools in the state to double their class size in the next three years and ask them to tell us what they would need from us to do that. You know, questions like that and plans like that, I think are would be what we're absolutely gonna have to do um, to get back to your question, which is staff those new beds that are going up. So thanks for that. That's I'm glad to have a chance to talk to, about that. And also just another opportunity to thank all the nurses who've really, uh, particularly our homegrown New Mexico nurses who've stayed with us, worked with us, uh, really spent a lot more time away from their families than ever dreamed they'd have to do. You know, they've really kept New Mexico going during the toughest times of the pandemic and still deserve our, all of our deepest respect and support. All right. Um, well, we're right about at time. So I think we'll um, end with Rick Ruggles, unless there's anybody else who has not had an opportunity to ask a first question. Rick, you should be uh, allowed to unmute yourself and ask your question. Rick, you need to unmute yourself. Okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. We can hear you now. Uh, these computers baffle me. Um, I'm Rick Ruggles with the Santa Fe New Mexican. Uh, thanks for giving us this time. Um, if I could ask two questions very quickly. I can't tell if this is a temporary respite or if we'll be back in the mess with a new variant. 
And secondly, for another story I'm working on, um, could you discuss the notion some people have that uh, coronavirus deaths are overstated and embellished versus the concept of excess deaths uh, relate, uh, related to um, indirect deaths because of uh, crowded hospitals, uh, uh, people dying at home, et cetera, et cetera. That's it. Yeah, um, I think there's no question that we should all expect that this respite is temporary. Uh, in my, like, I don't think there is a world where we're not gonna have another wave of another variant. But I think there's another world where we have a wave of another variant that with a lot of cases, maybe as high as our record of 7,000 a day, but that every New Mexican has access to oral treatment. And instead of having 700 hospitalizations, we can reduce that by 88%. And I have whatever that works out to 90 hospitalizations and 90 hospitalizations would not move the hospital needle into crisis. And so um, I'm working really hard with the DOH team and others to gear up and really focus on, first we need a, a, a bigger supply of oral agents, uh, but to focus on getting those to pharmacies. So if we do have on that six month cycle, another variant in June, we're ready for it. And physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, other treating providers are ready to jump in and immediately treat people to avoid hospitalization. And some people will still get IV monoclonal antibodies, Remember, we have immunosuppressed people who can get a shot in addition to their fourth vaccine shot that will prevent them from getting COVID, dramatically reduce the risk of getting COVID, a preventive shot called Evisheld. And so um, I'm thinking I'm going to get every tool I can in place throughout the state so that even with a big wave of people getting sick, maybe that we, we completely uh, and dramatically reduce uh, hospitalizations and deaths as a result of early treatment. And that leads us into your second question, is it, well, are there more people dying of COVID than we're saying or less? And I'm not gonna bring up the mortality report, but the mortality, we went, we spent a lot of time debating this in New Mexico in the summer of 2020. And uh, 90, I think it's about 90% of people who we report as having died of COVID, we report because their doctor who was taking care of them when they died, put COVID as the number one cause of death. And then the other 10% of people we report are people where the doctor might've uh, written something like pneumonia or, or something and had COVID second. And then we cross-check that. And if they had a positive test that right around that time that goes with that, because um, the second and third and fourth lines are other conditions that contributed to death. So if we are overestimating, it's by 10%, but as a physician, I don't think we're overestimating. And then you raised another really important wrinkle on this whole thing. And that is the, the fact that um, folks are, there is something called excess deaths associated with COVID-19. And that isn't, those are the people who died um, from other reasons not COVID. And so there are lots of things, delayed care, 
can cause death from heart attack if people couldn't get it. And so the CDC website does a, a much better job than I can do. Um, and so um, I think I would point you there, but there are estimates that that excess number of deaths that aren't specifically COVID, but related to just a pandemic and access to services and being alone and a lot of other things uh, for some people uh, could be as high as 20% additional. And so uh, uh, I think that's gonna be something we'll have more information on later, um, but it is, uh, the CDC did a really excellent job. And I think you actually, thank you for submitting the question in advance. It was, I hadn't gone to that website. I just dropped that into the, into the chat if other reporters are interested in looking that up as well. You know, Jody, I know we're over. I do see that. Um, I'd like to call on Jennifer Cuevas. Right. She has not been allowed to ask her first question. Yeah. Jennifer, you should be able to unmute yourself. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Grace. Can you all hear me? Yep. We can hear you. All right, cool. Um, so, well, thank you for your time. My and specifically to Doña Ana County, um, what do the trend or what is the trend regarding the cases right now? They seem to be fluctuating um, instead of just a downward trend. So what does that mean? Well, you know, I don't have a graph prepared just for Doña Ana, Ana County. We do do that in the modeling team. We look at each county specifically. I think that if you're looking at day-to-day -day case rates, they always fluctuate everywhere. And there was an interesting time about two weeks ago where most days that week, Doña Ana had more cases than uh, Bernalillo County did, which is bad because three times as many people live in Bernalillo County as Doña Ana. So um, we did see a fairly dramatic drop. We are different counties and different regions of the state are stabilizing. Um, I would encourage you to look at the seven day reports and the epidemiology reports. Um, there are some uh, reports by county there. And so um, I just, uh, that would be what I would suggest is that you all um, look at that, but don't pay too much attention to day-to-day -day data, day-to-day -day data. Um, I, I don't, um, I'm always waiting to see what a week's worth of data looks like. And I think as we start making changes to our reporting, you're gonna see more weekly reports on things and just much simpler daily reports that'll be available online. We had a slide about that, but I think it might've disappeared. So uh, we'll, we're gonna tell you a lot more about reporting changes next week. And we've got, we've reached out and got a lot of input from reporters. So I think, um, so I would go week to week. And, uh, you know, we said when this was dropping, we didn't know where it was gonna stop. I'm kind of happy that we're lower than we were in the shoulder that we were on with Delta. So I'm glad to be lower than that. And I think we're just gonna have to watch and see how things uh, work out. As usual, things like vaccination rates and masking and you know early testing and all those things will contribute to controlling cases in a, for a person, a household, a community, a city, a county. Jody, I am willing to, answer a couple more if they're super quick. 
All right, um, I'm going to call on Julia Goldberg next. Julia, you should be allowed to unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you, Jody. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. I was just hoping you could, um, to circle back again to the new CDC guidance, how you think um, right now school districts can make their own decisions about masks, but with this new information, what is your recommendation or will you be making a recommendation? Santa Fe Public Schools, for instance, planning to drop mask mandates after spring break, but now they are in a county categorized as we are in a county categorized as um, Matt recommending with masks indoors. So I'm wondering how you think school districts should use this information and if PED will make a recommendation about that as well. Thanks. Yeah, I know that the folks, uh, my esteemed colleagues, uh, uh, Kurt Steinhaus, Greg Frostad, and others that work very closely on this are digesting the data. I think ultimately the CDC is providing everyone with tools. And, you know, we went through sort of what I thought was a fiasco in late October where this CDC had guidelines for people who should get the booster and people who may get the booster and that drove us nuts and we couldn't stand it. And we just said, everyone get a booster. And then the CDC said that as well. So I don't, you know, I'm not, I think these are tools, like I just said, that individuals can use, just like weather reports or your own self-assessment of your condition. You know, most of us, when we're not feeling well, we don't go out no matter what the weather is, even if it's uh, nice uh, or we just sit on our back porch. And so I'm, I don't know the answer to your question. I have not talked to the schools, I did text Secretary Steinhaus last night. I said, I really need to talk to you about this new guidance. And I haven't heard back from him yet, um, but I know I will. And so we'll have more conversations there. But I do think that in general, the governor's intention is to provide individuals, families, communities, cities, counties with tools and to let them uh, make the decisions that they feel like are best. So I didn't mean to dodge your head. I just don't know. And uh, um, I think by letting schools decide what they're themselves, what they're gonna do, school systems, school districts decide what they're doing themselves. I think that is likely to continue, but we certainly will point them to this guidance and say, this looks pretty good. You ought to be thinking about this when you're uh, uh, making decisions in your area. Was there one more? I believe that's all our questions. Um, I'd like- You to know, Austin had his hand up, then he put it down and now he put it back up. As long as it's a friendly question, Austin, I'll take it. Can we unmute Austin? There you go. I, uh, I appreciate it. I promise all my all my questions are, are, are intended to be friendly, Dr. Okay, Ray. good. I don't so, mind. Challenging is okay too, just, you know. So, you, you know, you, you've indicated in this press conference that you are anticipating another uh, surge sometime in the future. You are anticipating more variants. So what would it take for New Mexico to re-implement a statewide mask mandate? What level of disability and death would you be able to tolerate before re-implementing the, the mandate? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know that we're predisposed to mandates. I mean, I think I think if it got to a catastrophic situation in New Mexico again, 
despite all the tools and treatments. One thing I didn't mention is we could have a scenario with 7,000 cases again, and the pills that we have to prevent that with the new variant aren't as effective. So it's still possible, but I don't think there's any discussion of future mandates. I think we're trying to fully arm uh, every New Mexican, or at least give them the opportunity to be fully armed with every resource they need to fight the pandemic. So I don't, um, I have no idea what that would be. I think it's one of those, you'd know it when you saw it. Um, you know, if uh, there were no hospital beds left anywhere in the state for a prolonged period of time. But um, it's really a speculative question. And I, I'm really hoping that by giving every, every New Mexico resident the tools they need, that we can transfer that kind of decision-making responsibility to the populace and not have it be so tightly held in, um, in government. I also think that all of our modeling data shows that when things get bad, people hunger down, whether we tell them to or not. So when they know their hospitals in their community are full or case rates are high or they have someone sick in their family, everyone redoubles their efforts and reduces mobility and uh, you know puts their mask back on and things like that. And I think those are sort of resources in our state, like the people's good judgment that we should assume we can count on as well. So I, I don't have the, uh, I don't really have the answer because uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think that's something we're even talking about now. We're trying to talk about doing everything we possibly can to ever avoid to avoid ever having to have a scenario like that again. And it is possible, like, you know, I was just talking about this with the epidemiologist. It, 